Welcome to the What's Your Revolution show, a show for men and the people who love them, where we discuss how men can find and embrace the healthiest versions of themselves. I am your host, Dr. Charles Corcoran. Each week we talk on the show about how men are working through being the best versions of themselves. And I am fortunate to have done this show for two years now. It's crazy thinking about that that this show about men and conversations with men and the people who love them, we've discussed a, a host of topics. And I am fortunate to each year for us to be able to recognize a person who has done amazing work in their field, amazing work when it comes to just being a man and being healthy, but also people who stand out that make change, because that's what revolution is about. It is about change. and. Often we talk about revolution and we think of, you know, bloody riots in the streets, people being murdered, people being hurt. But that's not that's not all forms of revolution. Right. Simply revolution can be how are you changing your communities? How are you changing it for the better? Right. How are the people walking in space and being able to be able to thrive? And that's what this brother here that I want to recognize today has the ability to do. He has the ability to provide revolution for the people, right? To be able to provide them with the lives that they need to be successful. And I'm talking about my man, Will Snowden, the revolutionary of the year. That's right. What's your revolutions? Revolutionary of the year. And as we get into the show, I'm going to let this brother tell you who he is. He's a second time guest for us. You know, we're going to dive deep into who he is and what he's doing. But Will, welcome to the show again, brother. It's great to hear from you. How you doing? Uh, no doubt, no doubt. Will, you know, we asked you the last time you were on the show, but also, you know, something may have changed. You may think about this a little differently. But Will, what's your revolution, brother? My revolution is understanding what policies are in place that are known to unfairly affect people of color and trying to pilot solutions in response to those policies. Most recently, it's been in the space of, of jury duty, of unanimous juries, of understanding how um, we can have juries that actually not only are representative of the peers, I'm making sure also jurors on that jury, making sure their votes actually count. Um, for some time since 1898, Louisiana has not had not, has not had unanimous jury. Um, but starting this year, January 1st, 2019, we are joining 48 other states to require unanimous jury, and it's been a tremendous privilege and honor to be part of the movement of all the folks that were involved in making that happen. Um, and for me, this is just the beginning. Right, right. You know, Will, it's interesting, you know, listening to that, and we'll dive into the history a little bit more later on. But when people talk about this, and forget me wrong, it's Proposition 2 that was on the ballot. Is that correct? Yeah, Amendment Number 2. Amendment Number 2, exactly. And if you go around the state of Louisiana, Will, and you talk about non-unanimous juries, and, and now, fortunately for us in Louisiana, that does not exist anymore, your name is synonymous with this, right? It's you. It's Will Snowden. And that's an interesting thing because you're not a politician. Uh, you're not at this, you know, at the state house in Baton Rouge. But when people think of this, right, this this revolutionary change that we saw, you know, going forward on Election Day back in November, people were like, this is synonymous with Will Snowden. 
How does that make you feel to think about your actions have historical ramifications for a state of people and particularly for people that look like you and me? You know, it is, um, it's a, it's a huge honor. It's a huge, um, just, it's, 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 it's amazing, right? To think that, uh, nights that I was spending at neighborhood associations, mornings that I was spending at high school, um, evenings at barbershop, um, going to any type of community gathering, right, to talk about jury duty starting back in 2015, 2016, specifically advocating for why we need unanimous jury, to think that those conversations and those seeds would be, you know, contributing to the growth of a movement to require unanimous juries is something I never would have imagined, and, and it, it wasn't even within my purview to think that this is part of the game plan, that we should be educating people about uh, the history and the problems of non-unanimous juries in Louisiana and the overall strategy of trying to get an amendment put forth for the people of Louisiana to eventually vote on it. I think my strategy, my approach, my theory of change was educate people about the problems of our system and then put them in places to be informed, to change it. And so, you know, being in a space to educate people about non-unanimous juries, understanding that New Orleanians and other people in Louisiana eventually would be called to be on a jury, they could understand how non-unanimous juries have been manipulated to affect certain people in this country. I'm sorry, in the state. And to have them in those seats talking about this history, educating their other jurors, I thought that would be a success. But what ended up happening is through these conversations of talking about jury, talking about diversity, not just diversity of race, but also diversity of ideology, and the importance of us having unanimous juries, people began to get this issue on their radar. And so when the amendment uh, was put on the ballot in 2018 and people started having these conversations, I was so excited to just dial back and look back at all the other all the organizations that I had met with, all the groups that I had met with. And send them a little reminder. Say, remember when we talked about this? Remember right. when you said that you wanted to support? Well, now's your chance. Right, right. And that's interesting because we don't know what we don't know. And to think through, having lived in this state, you know, having lived in New Orleans for the last 13 and a half years, you know, until that actually came up, right? And that thinking, right, around, wow, if something were to happen to me, right? If, I, if it's something, you know, I... I if I commit an act or, you know, I'm falsely accused of something, right? And maybe this, this act isn't an act of self-defense, right? Going through this process, you know, if two of those people, right, or, or 10 of those people, excuse me, 10 of those people think that I'm guilty and two at that moment said, no, no, wait a minute. We want to hear, I could still go to prison, right? And we, we, we had that happen. Sorry to cut you off. We had that happen since 1989, we had that happen to 12 people, right? Where there were two people that voted not guilty, and after investigation and litigation, they would found out that 12 people who were originally convicted via non-unanimous jury were later exonerated. So what that means is there were two people that actually got it right to prevent right. this injustice that you and I are talking about. 
that's and you think about those 12 lives and we know we've seen the disparities that happen in our communities and so many people have been falsely accused um, where DNA tests years later have shown that you weren't the person and you have had you've lost time you know imagine coming out 25 30 35 years after you've gone life has changed people have changed we we see how with the the onslaught of technology and how fast life is changing you think about where were you and i in 2005 with the you know uh, facebook revolution right and think about in 2019 right where we are now because of that you lose time and time goes by so fast um well you know knowing that and knowing that that we are now in february uh and january 1st was the the demarcation where non-unanimous juries are no more how are you seeing this now play out you know and, and it may be too soon for me to ask but after this policy change is enacted because policy as we know that changes behavior and that's what we ultimately want and i know you as a litigator that's what you want you want to see policy change but a month out you know as we move forward what have you seen or how are the tea leaves reading for you yeah so the unfortunately we haven't been able to see any change yet because the law applies to any offenses that occurred on january 1st 2019 and afterwards. So what we are experiencing now in January and beginning of February, the cases that are going to trial, those are offenses from 2018, 2017. And so since those offenses were alleged to have been committed before the law changed, unfortunately, you will still have trials in the year of 2019 where non-unanimous juries can apply because the unanimous jury requirement only applies to offenses that were committed this year. So I anticipate that we won't see the first trial requiring unanimous juries until the fall of this year. That means that somebody is charged with an offense um, in in January, February, March, whatever it might be. They won't actually be going to trial until the fall of this year. And then when they are actually going to trial, those will be the first cases that are actually requiring unanimous juries. Right, right. Well, we will make sure, you know, I know that both of us, as we keep track of this and think about, you know, how this amendment is going to change, hopefully, the lives of the people in our communities uh, across the state of Louisiana. It is a revolutionary act in itself. And, and hopefully, as you know, as both of us are statisticians, seeing those numbers drop, seeing the disparities uh, between race and gender lessen because of this amendment. And, and that's, just, that's what revolution is about in this stage. Uh, you know, as I said at the beginning of the show, revolution doesn't happen just when there, you know, there are bloody riots in the streets. For us as men of color, for us as black men, revolution happens when there are policy changes that impact how we show up in the world, right? And how we have that ability to show up in the world, Will. So I appreciate that. You know, l- let me ask you this question. When somebody says to you, walking up to the, you in the street, Will, and says, you know, how does it feel to be revolutionary, right? What do you think that you would say? You know, it's, uh, it's like when somebody asks you, your 18th birthday, how does it feel? You're like, I don't know. <laughs> it feels like when I was 17, right? And it, uh, I say that to mean I don't feel as if I am doing anything noteworthy or doing anything special or even doing anything that's really 
revolutionary in the sense that I have an expectation of our society. And when there are instances where I see the legal system in our society not doing what it is supposed to do in terms of equity, in terms of fairness, in terms of justice, I have an obligation to do something about it. And we have all been given different skills and different tools um, that allows us to be uniquely good at something. And we are all uniquely good at something that a different person might not be good at. I feel something that I have been, you know, favored with is the ability to tell stories, to be able, the ability to be persuasive, the ability to represent individuals and injustices in a way that makes it personal, that makes it uh, grounded in empathy, that allows us to change things based off of emotions and how we react. And so looking at uh, if somebody walks up to me and says, how does it feel to be a revolutionary? I think they're asking, like, how does it feel to live what you are destined to do? Um, I think about my parents who have taught me. Well, first, they were both were actually teachers. That was their occupation. But they have taught me so many life lessons that I can't disregard what I have learned over the years from them. And so to ask me, like, how does it feel to be a revolutionary? I think, how does it feel to live up to my obligations and expectations of the things that have been put upon me, that I know that the meaning of my life is to be a meaningful contributor to others. Right? And being in the space of justice reform allows me to do just that. Right, right. Sitting in your purpose, dear brother. That's what I heard. I exactly. And the humility that you you know, exude is what, you know, makes you who you are, Will. And that's the interesting thing. For those of you who are listening to the show, if you were to meet this brother in person, right, you know, very unassuming. But I remember hearing you speak about your uh, your venture when we were in Propeller together. And to listen to you, as you said, you are uh, an amazing storyteller, dear brother. And you captivate an audience. And that's the interesting thing. When you live in your purpose, you can tell the story from a, a place of passion, a place from your heart and from your soul, and and that's what you do. And you know that that's the appreciation that we he have here at the show for you. Like you said, when you're revolutionary, you don't think about that, right? Revolutionary is a term that people place on people once you're living and breathing and being a part of who you are, and you're seeing the life changing and the life affirming effects of your work. The one thing that you said, I want to. Uh, you know, dive deeper into is your relationship with your parents, you know, and I think about my parents and I talk about them at length here on the show, but describe your relationship with them. It seems like they had a tremendous, you know, influence and were beacons of light for you. What was it like growing up with them? Yeah. So I come from a blended background. So my dad is black and my mom is white. My dad grew up in El Dorado, Arkansas, which is about 15 miles north of the Louisiana border. My mom grew up in a town called Corning, Iowa, which is about an hour and a half from Omaha, maybe two hours west of Des Moines. It is some geography relation of other big cities. Growing up with them, um, I always had a sense that they had my back, right? And that being, I grew up in Milwaukee, you know, for many, many years, Milwaukee was called the Selma of the North due to <laughs> how segregated it was. Right, right. right. Uh -huh. um, and you can literally drive down uh, Capitol, which is a major street, and you can just see how the neighborhood changes. 
my parents have always been people who just kind of call things out when they need to be called out. I remember a time when, and I've shared this story before with folks, I was running cross-country practice in a suburb of Milwaukee called Wawatoka. And I was in ninth grade. I was by no means the fastest person on the team. In fact, I was the slowest person on the team. And on this particular day of cross-country practice, I am about a half mile behind the pack. As I'm running in this suburb called Brookfield, a police officer drives past me. And he says, he stops, he stops his car. He says, why are you running so fast? <laughs> and I stop. I catch my breath. And first I think, well, I'm actually not running that fast because the rest of the team is about a half mile in front of me. And I look at my outfit. I look that I have this um, cross-country shirt on that has uh, two seats. Uh, there's a, a two C's with an arrow through it, which is like the universal symbol for cross-country practice. I look at my shorts, which are ridiculously short, and no self-respecting person would wear them <laughs> unless they're running cross-country practice. Right? Right, I look right. at my outfit as my answer, and I tell him I'm running cross-country practice. And he says, likely story. Right? demands that I give him my name and my date of birth, and I, I do so. He runs my information, nothing pops up, and he pulls off. Now, I was upset that I got stopped, you know, by the cops for, obviously, seeing him thinking I could only be in the neighborhood up to no good. But when I went home and I told my parents, they, too, were upset. But they threw us all in the minivan, and we drove out to the police station. So my mom, my dad, and my sister, who was also... Um, similar complexion to me. We all drive off to Brookfield, which is about 30 minutes from my house. We walk into the police station. Now, I'll never forget, my, my dad is uh, brown skin, uh, six foot one. He walks up to the desk, to the desk sergeant, and he's, you know, going in, uh, demanding to speak to whoever stops me. My, my mom is doing the exact same thing, but she is uh, a smaller white woman. And the desk sergeant is confused that these two people came in at the same time, so he tells my dad to wait. He asks my mom, you know, ma'am, how can we help you? Not knowing that we were a family unit. And it has always been amazing to see my parents navigate this space of race in this country in an amazing just kind of tag team fashion. That they know exactly how to use my mom's privilege. They know exactly how to use my dad's direction um, and influence. And working together, they were giving this desk sergeant hell, and he didn't know what hit him. There was a point <laughs> when they finally bring out a lieutenant who agrees to speak to me and says, well, no, we have some questions for your son. So I go into the lieutenant's office, and my mom comes with me. And the lieutenant says, you know, what direction were you running? And I said, I was, I was running towards west. Now, everybody in the Milwaukee area knows that the particular high school I went to is, its full name is Wauwatosa West. No one says that because it's a mouthful. So you just say <laughs> West because right. there's also a Wauwatosa East. So you just say, I go to East or I go to West. No one says the whole thing. So I told this uh, lieutenant that I was running towards West, meaning towards Wauwatosa West High School. He interpreted that to mean that I was running the nautical direction of West. And so he challenges me saying, well, you can't be running west on that particular street because that street only runs north and south. And he tried to make that point to say that I was lying. And then he tells my mom, you know, kids lie all the time, right? And your, your son's story isn't shaken out. My mom goes, you know, you're absolutely right. Kids do lie all the time. 
when they have something to hide or they're trying to cover up something, she goes, we already know my son is the slowest kid on the team, right? So he's not trying to hide that. But if you don't give my son an apology, you're going to see this story in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel in about two days. And the lieutenant says, you know, we actually have a witness that saw the cop not stop and talk to your son. And when I heard that, I said, well, how could that be? Because I know I got stopped by this cop. And why is there a witness lying because they didn't see this happen? <laughs> this is crazy. I can't wait for the end of this. Now, and and I, I can't, I, I don't know how to respond, but my mom on it immediately. She goes, really? You have a witness that saw the cop not stop and speak to my son. So how did you canvas for that? Did you knock on doors and saying, hey, did you see this cop not and stop to talk to this kid? And when did you canvas that? Because we just walked in this door 20 minutes ago. So she was able to call out their BS in an undeniable way that a lieutenant knew that she had got him. And so my mom demanded an apology. The lieutenant ended up apologizing to me. My mom wanted it in writing, but they wouldn't give it to her. But we ended up leaving that station. And on the ride home in the minivan, I just remember seeing how my parents stood up for me. Right? They knew that something that I experienced was not right. And they taught me that when you either are witness to injustices or witnesses to mistreatment, you have an obligation to call it out. You have an obligation to speak against it because if you don't, there will be other people who get mistreated this way as well. Man, that is that is beautiful. So you you had, at an, particularly in your formative adolescent years, will got to see beauty, and I, I'm going to define that in a second, at work. And when I say beauty, the uh, ability for parents to understand that, and I'm going to think that my, my children are biracial, but but also they're seen, he, my son is seen as a black man right now. And because of that, yeah, be, because of that, we need to make sure that he understands how the world navigates towards him and how he has to then navigate as well as then. Right. And then showing you that we're not going to take this right, that we are powerful, that our voices together. And I love what you said about your mother early on, that being able to use her privilege. And that is a very interesting thing that we have to uh, illuminate for our white brothers and sisters in space who actually understand you know, what it means to use their privilege for good, as I say in my sessions, to use their superpower for good, right? And I'm sure thinking that your mother and father had a many a nights, you know, talking alone when you and your sister were in bed, how do we do this, right? We're living in Milwaukee, right? How do we raise biracial children, right? In a, in a, in a, in a society that is going to say, wait, wait a minute, what? Because that's what happened when your parents walked into the radio, I mean, uh, into the police station, they were confounded. They were confused. Like, wait, what? How do we do this? And so, that is a very interesting thing. So, taking from that that um, that incident that happened, right? What happened next for you? How were you able to internalize that and then move into other spaces as you continued to grow? I became a public defender, <laughs> right? I I saw the way that my parents stood up for me, right? And I realized that I couldn't stand up for myself in that situation. Um, and I also knew I had done nothing wrong. And I think about 
from my job as a public defender when I was a public defender, standing next to people who couldn't stand up for themselves. And I'm not going to be an attorney that makes you believe that all the people that I represented were innocent. Right? That was not the case. I was very comfortable as a public defender knowing that the majority of the people that I represented were, in fact, guilty. Right? And that's a hard thing for people to digest. You know, When I was a public defender, they would say, how can you defend this person charged with this? How can you defend this person charged with that? Right? It, the important thing to understand is that I defended the person, not the crime. And I'm very well in tune that there are policies in this country that change the life experiences and life opportunities that we all have. And a lot of those policies can track along racial lines. And so for me to have an understanding of that, in, in line with what Brian Stevenson tells us, like people are so much more than the worst that they have ever done, right? Being able to stand up for people is a, was a tremendous privilege and a tremendous honor. And knowing that I have an understanding of what our justice system should look like in a fair sense, in an equitable sense, and that's not what we're having, and that's divorced from people's innocence or their guilt. And so to reflect on the experience of this, seeing how my parents represented me in that particular scenario, I took that and I thought about how could I also, quote-unquote, pay it forward to other individuals who didn't know how to stand up for themselves, who didn't know how to speak for themselves, and who didn't have a full understanding of how the, on how the system should be working for them. Well, you know... I think what I, what I, you know, as I sit here and, and listen, what was left in me, and I've been sitting here pondering, was you said that people are better than the worst that they've ever done, right? <laughs> that statement just sits with me. And, and as a public defender, I, right, you have to think through that, right? You have to see somehow that there's some good in this person, right? Is that, is, is that what you're saying, that... Through, through all of this, all of the work that you've done, you see the person and that this action is, is maybe the worst that they've done, right? But somehow I, somehow I have to find the good in them. Is that what you're saying? It, it's, not, it's not just necessarily finding the good in them because I'll tell you, I didn't, <laughs> there were clients, that people that I represented, that it, that was very hard to do. Right, and that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it's got to be. Um, and I think about some of the cases in which I've represented people charged with murder, and when that murder is entirely recorded on triple high-definition video surveillance, and seeing that, and, and, and as I'm watching a video of a murder take place, and I'm representing that person, I'm sitting across from a table with them, and I'm in a position to fight for them, despite knowing that they are 100% guilty, that can be in a very, very difficult space to be in. But my resolve to do the public defense work that I did was rooted in an understanding that simply because you are poor does not mean you are not entitled to high-quality representation. There you go. Right. And the unique thing about being a public defender, as it, as it differs from other criminal defense attorneys who are challenging the system as well, is that the public defender... They represent poor people. And it's important to remember that because the system will treat you differently depending on what type of a lawyer you have. And that shouldn't be the case, right? I just have to do another quick, um, uh, I guess I'd call it 
side note or notation to Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy. He talks about uh, filing a motion, or maybe it was his TED Talk, I don't remember. He talks about filing a motion to have his client be treated as an elderly white man, right? That the system should view his young black male client as an elderly white man and give him all the privileges that would be afforded to an older white man coming to the criminal justice system if he was charged with the exact same crime. And of course, when the judge received that motion, the way that Brian Stevenson tells it, like he, it was absolutely ridiculous. It, it, it didn't, he couldn't possibly understand why an attorney would file such a frivolous motion. What Brian Stevenson was getting at is the disparities of our system and the way that people are treated differently. And so we rewind back to me sitting across the table from somebody who is very clear that they have committed this murder, and my dedication to representing everybody that is poor, I'm able to see that poor people are treated differently in this justice system compared to the way that somebody who has access to capital and access to wealth is treated different, is treated right. in a particular way. Right. And so if we get caught up on the behavior and not looking at the treatment within the system, what am I actually doing as a public defender? Right. If I am being distracted by offenses that people are accused of committing and crimes they're accused of committing, I'm not doing my job of challenging the system and the disparities that lie within it. Wow, right. And so, you know, people who are listening who want to say, wait, wait a minute, you, you just watched a murder. You know, how could you defend that? That's not what you're saying. You're just making sure, you're just making sure that, because the right as an American is, you know, the right to representation, right? Good representation. And because you're poor, that should not, that does not should disparage you from having that. And as a job, as a public defender, your job, if you're doing the best that you can do, is to ensure that you're giving them the best representation that they can get. Right. And so that's the, that, go that's ahead. Right. Go ahead. It's important to know, like, in that case, you know, there are cases like that where the person, you know, wants to admit guilt, right? And so it's not, it's, it shouldn't, that work shouldn't be framed in the space of, oh, you're just trying to get people off. So that's, that's not true at all. Like 95% of the cases that come through Tulane and Broad are, are resolved via a plea deal. Right. And so sometimes good advocacy looks like getting a good number that the person you're representing wants to wants to accept as far as admitting their guilt and taking responsibility in the case. It's not always, in fact, 5% of the time are you actually going to trial um, to, to, to really put the case to a jury. You're really doing a lot of your advocacy and making sure that whatever plea deal that you can get is A, one that your client wants, but also B, isn't necessarily thinking that this person, you know, deserves to be thrown away for the rest of their life. Right. Because, right. you know, we have been the prison capital of the world for so many years because of the way we just simply discard people. Right. You have to have an honest conversation that, you know, the things that might have led a person to commit a crime when they were 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, are not going to be the same thing 20 years later. And how can we be so naive to think that people can't change mm. um, and that people are worthy of forgiveness or redemption or whatever you want to call it? Having to throw them away and lock them up mentality, A, it doesn't work, right? Because if locking people up actually works, Louisiana would be the safest place in the country, but we're not. 
And B, it isn't always <laughs> what survivors of crime want. So understanding that we should be reevaluating the way that we're using prisons and jails in our country in the face of public safety is something that we need to continue to be able to do. And I think with this, a circle back with the conversation around non-unanimous juries, I think people really had reservations on a government taking away someone's liberty when all 12 people did not agree and demonstrating they have an expectation of proof beyond a reasonable doubt in our cases because they understand taking away someone's liberty is a very, very um, serious thing and that if the government is going to do that, they have to do it in a legitimate way. Right, and we know here in the state of Louisiana, once you're convicted, um, you lose a, a, I want to say, a, a crucible of rights here. Um, you lose so many, what do I want to say, there are over 300 limitations that happen if you're convicted. If you're a convicted felon here in Louisiana, you lose so many rights. And so we, as you said, want to make sure that we get it right. You here listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corper. My guest today is the esteemed Will Snowden. Will, uh, Tell us a little bit more about what you're doing now. You know, you've, yeah. changed, you've changed positions. You're not a public defender anymore, um, but you're with another organization. And what's the name of yeah. it, and what's, what's your role there, and what's the premise of what you're doing? Yeah, so I am now with the Vera Institute of Justice, the New Orleans office. Um, so the Vera Institute of Justice is a nonprofit um, founded in New York in 1961, primarily around that time looking at the, the way that money bail is used in the criminal justice system. Vera first came to New Orleans in 2006, specifically after we were invited by Councilmember James Carter to look at how we could be improving um, our system of jail population management. So before 2006, before 2005, New Orleans had an average monthly jail population of about 6,500. As of January, this last month, our average monthly jail population was 1,203. Oh, wow. So that's a huge reduction right. from 5,500 to 1,203, a huge reduction, a huge testament that this size of a city does not need that size of a jail. And the way that we were able to get such a huge reduction in our jail population was because you had a sheriff that was interested in, in having a smaller jail. You had interested government partners in the mayor's office and the city, and city council that were interested in having a smaller jail. You had members of the community demanding a smaller and safer jail. You had the Vera Institute of Justice who came in to provide some technical assistance in the space to really study the data of the different populations making up um, the population of the jail and really understanding that we can be a safer city with a smaller jail. And at the same time, we can be saving money and, and investing them in areas that actually are proven to help reduce crime um, as opposed to simply just locking people up and having their cases go on for an egregiously long time. So we continue, so we were brought to, to really start looking at how we reduce the jail population. Since then, we have been very involved with continuing that work of jail population management. We are also occupying the space uh, around reform for bail fines and fees. Additionally, we are working with the New Orleans Police Department with a program called Law Enforcement Assisted Diversion, which generally stands for the premise that, you know, there are police officers that have regular contact 
with folks of this city that might have substance use issues, mental health issues, um, issues dealing with trauma, and that taking them to jail is not always the best response. Right. And so this program uh, allows lone police officers, instead of taking those individuals to jail, when they do come into contact with them, they can call Odyssey House. Odyssey House can send out a case manager. The case manager will be able to do an assessment of the individuals and say, okay, how do we get this person aligned with housing? How do we get them aligned with substance use treatment, mental health treatment, whatever it might be, to really divert that person from the jail and direct them towards resources will, which will actually help them come into contact with the justice system at a much lower rate. Right. So those are the three main things that we have been doing on our, on our radar is certainly uh, figuring out what type of policies can we be discussing to reshape prosecution in the city of New Orleans, specifically understanding that since 2017, we have had a lot of criminal justice reform bills come out of the state legislature and, legislature and what policies need to be in place to take advantage of those reforms. But additionally, what policies should we have to be consistent with best practices from around the country? We've been hearing a lot in the news of these reform-minded prosecutors that have, that have um, you know, come out of Philly, that have come out of uh, St. Louis, Chicago, Brooklyn, Houston, and they're really changing the game. They're really understanding that we need to be revisiting the way that we're using jails and prisons to promote public safety and having an honest conversation that some of our practices that we've had for the past decade aren't actually the best approaches. Right. They're almost archaic. In saying that, Will, there are a couple couple conversations that I have, you know, and our, you know like I said, our time was going to always go fast, is that the Koch brothers have begun to become a voice in prison reform, which is, you know, if you see my eye right now, like, hmm, the Koch brothers? But they're partnering with big names like Snoop Dogg uh, to really rethink prison reform. What are your thoughts about that? You know, bringing the Koch brothers in and, and their money, their backing around the issues of prison reform uh, that you're seeing across the country. So there's, there's a unique middle lane that can be occupied by folks on both sides of this, of this ideological spectrum, right? That, you know, on the, on the liberal agenda, sometimes it's considered that there's more of a humanitarian approach to criminal justice reform. And on a conservative agenda, there's sometimes considerations that their approach to criminal justice reform is more rooted in um, cost savings and efficiency. And so when we think about the latter being a framework in which reform can be driven, I don't have any problems with that. You know, I think the oftentimes people in the business community look at reform in the spaces of efficiency, effectiveness, and fairness. And if those are the frameworks in which they want to drive reform, I don't think that flies in the face of a humanitarian agenda. And to realize that there are strange bedfellows in this criminal justice reform space. <laughs> yes, they are, Will. can be a very unique um, amalgamation of actors to bring out real impactful reform. Right, right. And you think about the system, you know, and systems change. There has to be a number of actors from a very different platforms that have to come together to really enact change. So it was really interesting to see that and to see, as you say, these strange bedfellows that come together uh, around prison reform. Let's move the conversation a little bit, Will, uh, and talk more about you and, and thinking about you and then a, a larger landscape. You know, you think about that, you know, public, successful public defender. Uh, you moved into the nonprofit space 
um, and, and began to really move move that initiatives and move those initiatives forward. You know, thinking about that, right? Great storyteller, great orator, high profile. When people say Will Snowden now across Louisiana and across the country now because you're around there, they're like, I know this guy. Would you ever think about running for office? So I think <laughs> there are... <laughs> Here, I got it. Um, it, it's not on my radar right now, right? But I, I don't um, say that it isn't something that isn't possible because I have learned from you know leaders here in New Orleans and elsewhere, it is very, very important to be in a position that you can influence policy, right? And you ask yes. me you know, what my revolution is, and I think about this underlying question that I, I want every you know, criminal justice reform advocate to be thinking about is what policies are in place that are known to unfairly affect people of color. And when we have that as our sounding board, when we're looking at how to change policies, you have to be, sometimes you have to be in a position as a legislator, as a governor, as some, you know, some politician to influence what those policies actually are. And right now, you know, I think my theory of change with my work with the Dura Project has been community education, community organizing, um, and bringing power from that angle. My work with Vera is, is introducing partnerships with government actors, but also partnerships with community organizations that are also trying to advance the reform agenda. What holds, you know, what the future holds, I don't know. Like, I'm still very new at the Vera Institute of Justice. I've been, they brought me on as a director about seven months ago. So I'm wow, really- it's been that long, wow. Yeah, I'm really excited to think about how I can chart my strategy of influence, not only here in New Orleans, but thinking about how New Orleans could be an example for other parishes in Louisiana, but also other cities in the South. Right, right. The reason why I ask you that, and that was a wonderful answer, Will, is that I'm seeing what's going on in my home state of Virginia, right? Um, and I know that you follow politics very, very well. And, you know, and, and thinking about uh, possibly my own political aspirations down the road. It's hard being a politician these days. Not that it hasn't been hard previously, but in the information age that we live in and the tribalized perspectives that we see every day, uh, knowing all of the things that you want to do, what you just said, is there anything that would hold you back? Because it's hard. I look at what's going on with Governor Northam in Virginia, with Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, with the Attorney General as well. There's a lot going on there, and you know I don't want to speak one way or the other, but the scrutiny of politicians uh, is so fierce these days. Why would anyone want? To, why would anyone want to go in and be a part of that? I had the opportunity uh, to be a, a a law clerk, a summer law clerk for a federal judge in New York. And at the end of the summer, he told me, "If you keep your nose clean, you'll go far." <laughs> Right. Right. <laughs> we think about this uh, heightened scrutiny that um, we have seen of late that is looking into people's past and, and people's history and things that they may have done from when they were younger. I think we need to evolve into how we appreciate people's past um, as well as individuals recognizing 
um, their errors from their past and how they were wrong in the past and their commitment and demonstrations of how they change going forward. But the traditional scrutiny isn't concerning to me. Um, I think if I were to get into politics, I wouldn't let things like that get in the way because I'm willing to be honest about things that I have supported, about things that I have done, and honest and vulnerable in saying, yeah, I thought this was right in 2018, right? I didn't, on my radar, I did not consider X, Y, and Z. But now standing here in 2030 and knowing so much more, I can say, yeah, that wasn't the best decision. The problem with some politicians nowadays is they're afraid to admit that they are wrong. And when you're afraid to admit that you can be wrong, you're afraid to admit that you can be human. And that's what we're losing is this humanity in our politicians right. thinking that they need to be on point 24-7 and right all the time. Right. And understanding that that is not the world that you live in as an average, everyday citizen. So why is that going to be the world you live in as a politician? Right. And when we stop kind of creating this fantasy world of these unrealistic um, expectations of being right 100% of the time, I think we can see a transformation of what a true politician can do. Right. And it's interesting that you say that because we talk about this from a psychological perspective, that we want people to grow, right? Learning is growth. Uh, as I said to a colleague today on one of our phone calls, there's a line in a Wale song, right? And it's actually the intro. Uh, he's talking to Jerry Seinfeld, I think. And Right. And I love this song because it really talks about, you know, getting married. And he asked, he's like, you know, are you ever going to be ready for marriage? He was like, no, you're never going to be ready for marriage. It's growth. Right. It's growth. Right. You're never going to be ready for growth, but you have to be able to lean into that. And but then we're asking politicians, right, people who have held public office not to grow, not to evolve, to stay the same. Like if you're conservative, you always have to be leaning conservative. If you're liberal, you always have to be leaning liberal. And that's not who we are as people. But in this polarized, you know, and polarized globalization that we have around politics, it, it's hard. It's You know, I, I challenge you know, myself to think about that. Like, do I want to be a politician? You know, knowing that the the, the, the policies that I want to advocate for, but do I want to go through that scrutiny on a daily basis? Uh, as I said, anybody that comes behind Barack Obama as a, as a man or woman of color, it's going to be tough, right? It is going to be hugely tough. So that is why I asked you that question, Will, because, you know, from what I know, you know, I know that you've kept your nose clean. From what I perceive, and I think what the society perceives of you, you've kept your nose clean. You know, and I thought about who who would I want to get behind, right? And say, you know what, I'm behind his policies. I want to advocate for him. Um, but it's a it, it's a really tough road, as we see here in our current times. You know, one of the last things I want to ask you before we leave, Will, is a, is a concept that has been introduced to me you know, really professionally, and I think I try, I try to, uh, you know, then internalize it into my personal life, is this concept of 100% responsibility. Um, and have you heard Have you heard of this? I'm sure you have. But this concept of 100% responsibility is, you know, even though outcomes may happen against us, we still have to take 100% responsibility. And I, my question to you, dear brother, is, has there been something in your life where you said, you know what, 
I could have taken more responsibility. I could have said, I have a hundred percent responsibility in how this outcome, and then you didn't. Hmm. Let me think about that. And I know it's I look, I know it's a tough question. You know, I remember being asked that question and, you know, like, wow, um, you know, as you think, you know, I, I think about, you know, my relationship with my fraternity brothers and, you know, having gone through a really tough year, you know, and them wanting to spend some time with me and me kind of saying, you know what, I don't want to I don't want to I just need to be me. My 100 percent responsibility was I never told them what I was going through. Right. And so when it all when it all came out, you know, and we were arguing at each other about why I wasn't here or there at certain times and me getting upset, like, why are you fussing at me? I had to realize that I never said anything to them what what was going on in my life. So I had to take 100 percent responsibility of that. So what are you thinking? Yeah, I think I have um, a similar sentiment when I think about the variety of relationships that I've had in my life with family members, with friends, with partners, um, just not, not communicating in an honest way and often being too concerned about how my behaviors were going to affect other people and that being, that concern being put over my own happiness, right? Mm. If I, you know, I think about situations with my parents and the expectation that they have created for me. And uh, like with religion, for example. So my mom uh, is Catholic. My, my parents are Catholic. My mom used to be a nun, right? So before she met wow. my dad, she was a nun. So like, she, she's like really Catholic. Right. Um, but in a really awesome way, um, she's very critical of the Catholic Church and demands so much more of the Catholic Church. Um, but you know, I was, me and my sisters, we were raised Catholic, and, you know, I would go to church, I'd get communion, we would do the sacraments, and I just, I wasn't, I wasn't buying that version of a relationship with the spiritual being. And I didn't want to talk to my parents about that. I didn't want to disappoint, mm. particularly my mom, who, in her life, going to church is something that is very important and meaningful to her. Right, and so right. there have been times where, you know, I have not been, or there were times since I've had a conversation with my mom, but there were times in which when I would talk to my mom about going to church in college, I wasn't taking responsibility and owning up the truth that I didn't believe in this particular mm, path tell of, the story, brother. of yes. a relationship with a spiritual being. Right. Right. I would make up excuses as to why I wasn't going to church as opposed to being honest about what I was experiencing and why I was experiencing. Right. And, you know, my mom is, uh, an amazing woman, and so is my dad. And my mom, she will give you some honest, harsh feedback. But in having a disagreement with my mother, you know, she called me out for being defensive. And she said, well, you have to understand that I'm only telling this because I love you and because I want you to grow and I want you to be great. And in spaces where I reflect upon me not taking responsibility of the honesty going through my heart and going through my mind and not sharing that particularly with my yes. mom, I realized I wasn't being truthful with her or myself. Yes. And that yes. was actually a violation of our relationship. Right. right? No. And I was betraying the trust and the love that exists to this day. And for some reason, I didn't want to own up to that. Right. No, that is a beautiful example. And it's something that I'm actually going through 
on a daily basis with my mother, dear brother. So I, I definitely understand and I appreciate that story. As always, Will, you know, our time runs by so fast. Uh, and I want to thank you again for one, accepting this, you know, as we think here at What's a Revolution, a very prestigious award for being our Revolutionary of the Year. Thank you for all the work that you do here in Louisiana, uh, ensuring that we have the ability to wake up every day and have the ability to thrive. Thank you for the people across the country, right? The people that you serve who get to hear your voice and your story. Uh, you are a testament to what it means to be revolutionary in our time. So I am grateful for this time, dear brother. Um, and I know that the people in Louisiana are so grateful for you as well. Uh, if people want to get in touch with you, they want to hear more of your story, where can, where can they find you? Yeah, they can um, send me an email. Like WC Snowden at gmail.com. Like it, it's it's weird. I'm a I'm a really good pen pal. <laughs> I, I gotcha. I love that. I love that. It's just having conversations. Well, I, I use that term conversation in the, in the sense of being able to correspond via email because I can I can you know read the message. I can think about it. And I can respond, and it can be a conversation that takes place over time. Right. Um, and, and just before we go, you know, my involvement with the unanimous jury amendment um, and the tremendous, you know, being partnership of the unanimous jury coalition and writing op-eds. One benefit personally of that for me um, has been somebody that I'm corresponding with at an Angola prison um, who was convicted via a non-unanimous verdict. Wow. And the law has passed. The law does not apply to him because it is not retroactive. Uh, but we continue to email about all kinds of things, about the Saints, about, um, you know, the rodeo at Angola, about all different kinds of things. And we call it, it's funny because he said, I'm your pen pal in the sense <laughs> of I'm your pal in the penitentiary, right? right. And wow. It, wow. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful art form to correspond via letters that we just don't often experience anymore. Um, and I know our version is like emails, but, you know, thinking about handwritten letters, Right. Uh, I love to, you know, just converse with people via letters or emails. And so if people want to send me an email to ask questions, to be thought partners, um, to share ideas, I'm more than willing to be able to. Wonderful. Well, we appreciate it. WCSnowden at gmail.com. We've been talking to Will Snowden, uh, Executive Director of the Vera Institute here in New Orleans. Uh, founder of the Jura Project here in New Orleans as well. Will, thank you. You all have been listening to the What's Your Revolution show with Dr. Charles Corporu every week on here on the What's Your Revolution podcast as well as on WHIV 102.3 here at our, no, at our new home, all right, the Millhouse Studio. We'll talk to you next week, everybody. Peace and always be able to answer the most thought-provoking question of your life. What's your revolution, everyone? Peace. <laughs>